Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads. Season 3, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. Chapter 3, How Did They Know? I'm reading this off scribd.com, scribd.com, and um, I recommend, um, like some other seasons, the book does have some illustrations, uh, so if you can find a physical copy or even just this version that's on scribd.com, you can see those. Um, anyway, without further ado, let's get started. Chapter 3. How did they know? Quote, Sir, I hear a report of a stone wall and strong fort in it, made all of stone, which is newly discovered at or near Piquet, present-day Gunnywamp. I should be glad to know the truth of it from yourself, here being many strange reports about it. End quote. Letter from John Pinchon to John Winthrop, November 30th, 1654. At this point, you may be thinking, well, this is an interesting theory, but these ancient peoples did not have electrical, electronic instruments. So how did they know about the presence of magnetic and electromagnetic anomalies without the aid of magnometers, electrostatic voltmeters, and ground electrodes? The short answer is, they felt it. In fact, the average person is often capable of detecting such minor magnetic differences under the right conditions. A small percentage of people seem to be ultra-sensitive to magnetism and can locate anomalies more or less any time. This is true for modern people who live surrounded by the constant distraction of permanent magnetic anomalies in the steel beams of our buildings and cars and who sleep and move in artificial electric fields. All of these elements must make us less sensitive than people who live largely outdoors without such desensitizing distractions. Even, yet even, we can feel electromagnetic changes at times, and shamans can almost always feel them. In this chapter, we will show you the examples of this effect still occurring today. Let us start with ourselves, regular people. Scientists in India, some 20 years ago, decided to measure just how much household electric fields might be affecting our minds and bodies. They placed human volunteers as well as rats flat on their backs and passed a ring over their bodies, simulating the 110 volt alternating current fields in our homes, which oscillate 50, 55 to 60 times per second. They measured blood pressure, pulse, brainwaves, neurotransmitter levels in the blood, and also asked for comments from the humans. To the disappointment, they found no changes. Now they decided to lower the rate of oscillation and see if that would produce physiological changes. It didn't, until they got all the way down to 0.01 oscillations per second. That is one oscillation per 100 seconds. Then they saw fireworks. Three aspects of particular interest for our thesis are 1. Oscillations of 1 per 100 seconds are what frequently occur in the wee hours of the morning when we get an occasional twang of the magnetic field lines from disruptions in our planet's magnetosphere many miles above. 2. Oscillations of 1 per 100 seconds are not what we call alternating current, but are really more of a distributed disturbance in direct current. And DC is what is found in nature, not AC. 3. The strength of the magnetic field produced was 50 gammas or 50 nt 
nanoteslas, equivalent to the strength of the Earth's naturally daily perturbations, only a fraction of the 300 to 500 gamma anomalies that we found at some mounts. A gamma is a unit of magnetic field strength. Essentially, the volunteers were far more susceptible to effects mimicking natural magnetic fields than they were to magnetic fields similar to those in their homes. Just what effects? Well, that depended on which way they were facing. When their heads were pointing east, the rats failed to react, but humans reported a blissful reverie. With heads facing south or west, neither rat nor man reacted at all. But when the heads were facing north and the staff triggered the magnetic fluctuations, everyone got very unhappy very fast. Humans reported anxiety, distress, panic, even nausea. The rats, who of course couldn't talk, finally weighed in on the self-reporting scale and screamed. Both species showed disruptions and every vital sign being monitored. And these sensitives were oh wait, and these sensitivities were found with average people of no particular sensitivity. The same strength of magnetic fluctuations, 50 nanotesla or 50 gammas, has also been found to increase sudden unexpected death in epileptic rats. Such deaths among human epileptics peak during the wee hours of the morning, just as do the pre-dawn fluctuations in the geomagnetic field. Not all dowsing is false. Dowsing is traditionally the art of finding water, usually with the aid of a dowsing rod which amplifies minute muscle contractions. The idea being that the presence of water causes the dowser to twitch. However, a broader definition of dowsing would include the ability to sense with the body a number of physical forces. Dowsers have long been the subject of admiration or disdain, depending on who you are talking to. Occasional scientific studies have pronounced that the performance of the subject averaged no significant difference from what you would expect from random chance. However, there's one basic weakness in studying dowsers. You cannot just call up the dowsers union and ask them to send over a few journeyman dowsers and please have them bring their certificates. All you can do is place an ad asking for dowsers. When your pool of self-described dowsers shows up, a large percentage will not actually be capable of the art. Some are people who obviously delude themselves. When you take their results and mix them in with people with real ability, the percentage of actually is simply never going to reach the 95% that science requires for statistical significance. Only when, then, <clears throat> when the odds are 20 to 1 that your findings are not random, is it accepted by the scientific community. Now when a scientific report says no difference, it often does not really mean no difference. In fact, the differences could be 5 to 1 against random chance. But, since only the 20 to 1 gold standard is accepted as statistical significance, the conclusion will often be worded, no difference. Dr. Hans Dieter Betz at the University of Munich is a little more imaginative than your run-of-the-mill scientist because he thought about this problem and decided to simply analyze the data in a different way. Instead of lumping everyone's results together, he had 43 subjects make multiple attempts, and then analyze the results of each individual for statistical significance. He and his team found that about 2% of the volunteers could hit the nail on the head almost every time, and scored better than 95% significance, or 20 to 1 odds against his performance being a matter of luck. For the best individual, it was 1,700 to 1 that his, he, that his success was not just due to luck. <clears throat> 
Dr. Betts then took these individuals and subjected them to further testing. Some proved remarkably sensitive. When blindfolded and asked to walk the length of a board, they were supposed to point to various pieces of steel pipe that would be placed on the ground along the way. This was repeated again and again as the objects were moved at random. Some fascinating insights to the nature of the dowsing response emerged. First of all, it became clear that these gifted individuals were leading the rod rather than the other way around. A split second before the rod moved, their muscles would twitch. In other words, they didn't really need a rod. Secondly, some were capable of reliably detecting differences in magnetism of only a few gammas or 10 times more sensitive than the average people in the Indian experiment and more than sensitive enough to locate the much stronger anomalies that we have seen at megalithic sites. Unlike many of the volunteers of the Indian experiment, they were also consciously aware of the changes when they chose to be. Now these results were all under under laboratory conditions. Andre Apostle wanted to know if the sensitives could perform in the field. Sensitive to Earth Magnetism Apostle is a Roman Romanian physicist who came to America from behind the former Iron Curtain to be able to indulge in a curiosity that others had called insatiable ever since he was a child. He knew that the first written reports of dowsing came from Germany in the 1500s when miners used rods to locate underground bodies of metallic ores. In Germany, as far back as 1747, such ores could also be located by looking for emissions of light from the ground. In America, Apostle saw evidence similar to what we found. He noticed how maps of magnetism and gravity again and again would show that ancient builders had singled out spots with anomalies in these forces, and he too wanted to answer the question, how did they know? So, when he heard about Dr. Betz's dowsing study, he immediately flew to Munich. He brought back one of the more talented individuals, a dowser that he managed to intrigue with his enigma of the ancient Americans, identified in the study. In New York, he loaded this man, plus some very special equipment, into a station wagon and headed west. Apostle was not one to wait around for grant money. He just withdrew his savings and left town. In the back of the station wagon, the sensitive could lie prone with a blindfold on, wired up to Apostle's apparatus that would measure any twitching of his arm muscles. Andre would use a random number generator to choose from a selection of possible routes through an ancient site of a gravity anomaly. Such anomalies were sometimes chosen for megalithic structures in the Americas. The same method was used to select the time he began this route. In this way, the blindfolded volunteer wouldn't know where he was. But as it turned out, when the car crossed areas where gravity changed force, his muscles began contracting and only relaxed as the car emerged out the other side, some 20 minutes later. The dowser performed just as well standing up. Walking over the gravity anomaly of an underground cavern at the cave of the Mounds National Natural Landmark in Wisconsin, he produced the same pattern of muscle twitching. In other words, he could identify the location of a cave just by walking over a flat piece of ground above. Apostle mentions this in his report that certain Native American groups would require an apprentice shaman to be able to locate a cave blindfolded. Perhaps they did in a similar way. His work was considered solid enough to be published in a peer-reviewed journal of scientific exploration, and he was asked to present it at their annual conference in California. His scientific peers agreed that he was certainly onto something. We agree, too. 
several years later, we had cause to be particularly interested in his work in connection with shamanism. In recent years, several scientific studies have shown that humans are indeed sensitive to earth magnetism. Researchers have found traces of magnetite in humans located in the sinuses of the ethmoid bone. Such natural magnetic crystals are found in virtually all animals that use the earth's magnetic field to navigate, for instance, salmon, pigeons, and dolphins. Altering Consciousness Dr. Michael Persinger is a Canadian psychologist who believes that magnetic fluctuations produced naturally by certain types of geology can have dramatic effects on the human mind. For 15 years now, he has worked with the helmet, as his volunteer subjects call it. It is a non-football helmet wired so as to be able to produce 50 gamma magnetic fluctuations around the brain of a sitting subject. He cho chose this, this strength because it is consistent with the fluctuations often found in nature. His work has been publicized countless times in print and on television because the results are so eerie. Persinger reports that when he flips on the switch, approximately 30% of volunteers report visionary-like experiences. These visions range from distortions of time and space to what the subjects call an encounter with the supernatural. Of course, much is determined by set and setting. If Persinger plays Gregorian chants in the background, a good percentage report having a religious experience. If he plays the theme notes from the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, many report experiences similar to being abducted by a UFO. In our opinion, the giant outdoor laboratory that can confirm Persinger's finding in the real world just lies outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Here, in Petroglyphs National Monument, the divide between two major zones of difference geology is provided by the eons old course of the headwaters of the Rio Grande River. In this area, we have the largest conductivity discontinuity in the lower 48 states. We also have the biggest concentration of ancient Amer Native American rock art in the U.S. In the past decade and a half, the academic community has come to the consensus that most rock art was the work of shamans, illustrating the hallucinations during altered states of consciousness. This theory has been confirmed across the world in many other ancient cultures as well, and anyone interested in finding out more should explore the journal publications of Dr. David Lewis Williams. Was the Persinger effect the connection between conductivity, discontinuity, and rock art? I decided to take my instruments there and find out. From the moment I got out of the car and walked into the rocks that have tumbled off this basalt escarpment in Petroglyphs National Monument, readings on the electrostatic voltmeter showed that the rocks had electric charge and were electrifying the air around them. Background control checks made it clear that this was not something happening in the whole area, just where the basalt, outcro basalt outcrop outcropped, just where the pictures were carved. Late in the afternoon, I had great luck. While measuring a distinctive outlying boulder with the carving of a shaman on it, the meter's needle began to rise until it was off scale. At first, only this rock seemed to affect the meter, but soon it became clear that there was in fact an enormous rise in electrification of the rock all along the escarpment. When the readings dropped a bit and the needle came back on scale, it was reading 8,000 volts per inch. This, volt, this level of voltage is higher than we normally find in thunderstorms. Running backwards to the car, I made occasional stops for reading, showing that this disturbance had spread. 
Once in the car, I drove at 70 miles per hour on the two-lane road trying to get ahead of the spreading wave of electric charge. I raced a mile or so back up along the edge of the escarpment to the park's visitor center and found that the disturbance had not hit there yet, so I waited. Within 10 minutes it showed. As I drove along the several mile length of the park rocks, I was able to follow the spread of this anomalous charge. It took about 45 minutes to travel three miles. Usually electric current travels faster than that, but it was positively charged, not the lightning fast electrons that we usually think of as electric current, but rather the heavier positive ions, which are slower moving. Whatever it was, it was extremely powerful. When I returned to the visitor center for more readings, the rangers asked me what I was doing. They knew that this place was the nation's biggest conductivity discontinuity, and one of them told us something interesting. With an amused smile, she said, quote, You know, sometimes I get these new age types in here who tell me they just like to go up and sit in the rocks and feel the energy. I always thought they were a bunch of flakes, but you're telling me there just might be something to it. End quote. Gummy Womp Surprises Eastern American residents seeking a taste of these forces might consider a visit to Gunnywomp Swamp in southeastern Connecticut. Could be Gungiwomp. I might be mispronouncing that. Here, high ground in a still uninhabited marshland is sprinkled with magnetic anomalies, and rock chambers are built over many of them. One chamber has a special shaft aligned so that the rays of the rising sun on the winter solstice penetrate the heart of the chamber and illuminate a connecting miniature chamber, only three feet high. Visiting these sites, as well as the infamous Cliff of Tears, I received some surprises along the way. The first surprise came during my walk down the trail behind Dave Barron, a laconic, white-haired Connecticut Yankee with a wickedly dry sense of humor. He had been, been president of the Gunjiwamp Society for what seemed like forever, at least today. Quote, I made these class, this, the classic mistakes in a nonprofit foundation, he told me. I didn't show up the day we selected a president, so they picked me because I was not there to defend myself. Of course, his work, work was so exceptional that no one ever wanted anyone else. You know, I've been taking people on tours of this place for 25 years, and I have heard some making these crazy claims about energies and vibes, he said, pointing an index finger at his temple and making little circles. Lots of them had brought dowsing rods, and I thought, hey, let them have their little fun. It's harmless. But over the years, I started to notice people getting the same reactions at the same spots over and over again. So I decided to give it a try. Baron broke out his own dowsing rod, cut off pieces of wire hanging, bent and stuck loosely in plastic socks, which he held at chest height. After a few minutes, they started spinning fast enough to produce a high-pitched whine with the metal rods rubbing the edge of the plastic sockets as they twirled. See what I mean? Baron smiled. It's a pretty active day. Walking behind him, I looked at my electrostatic voltmeter, and every time we got to a spot where his rods twirled, my readings would spike. On one stretch of the trail beside the row of standing stone slabs, his, his twirling and my meter peaked repeatedly at a half dozen spots located equidistance to one another. At each spot there seemed to be an electrified vertical curtain of air about a foot thick, stretching clear across the trail. I didn't believe it at first, so I double-checked and triple-checked. The columns of electric air rose from 
the ground to as high as I could reach. See what I mean? Baron said again. On, on any active day, the rods go crazy here. What I was really hunting here, however, was not the bedowsing response or even the rock chambers. I wanted to visit the Cliff of Tears about which I had heard so much. It was thus named because a large number of people had simply broken down here and started sobbing uncontrollably, for no apparent reason. The Baron has it was a retired speech therapist and uh, no-nonsense New Englander. <clears throat> I didn't put much stock in this stuff when I started giving tours, but then I began to witness something pretty funny. One day I took a bus from Alcoholics Anonymous on a walk tour here, and four of them got nosebleeds right at the Cliff of Tears. One or two of them I would have chalked up to coincidence before made me wonder. Then women I know and trusted started telling me about spontaneously beginning to menstruate while standing there. So we did a study. Nurses measured 20 volunteers that day. The one thing that changed to a degree statistically, to a degree of statistical significance, was blood pressure. Walking on, Baron continued his banter, occasionally pointing out particularly strong dowsing response. So I paid no special attention when, one, at one point on this woodland trail, he casually gestured into the underbush and seemingly off the cuff told me we usually get an interesting little energy line here running up the hill he kept walking but when my voltometer detected the line our curiosity led me to follow through it through unbroken underbush up a small hill my progress was halted by a rock wall at the top but about 10 feet out from the base of this rocks was a six foot wide circle where the voltmeter reading was so strong and abrupt that it caused me to take the Lord's name in vain. Behind me, there was chuckling, evolving into outright laughter from the other members of the Gungjuan swamp who had come with us. The uproar was followed by Baron's dry voice. You're standing at the Cliff of Tears. The electric static readings inside this six-foot circle remained steady, so I turned my attention and my magnometer on the cliff face itself. As I got close to it, the readings began climbing at an unexpected clip. Startled, I wondered what could be causing such a surge until I saw running horizontally across the face of the cliff, just about head height, a six-inch wide brown band of magnetite ore. West Coast PowerPoints Residents of California do not have far to go in order to experience some of the energies discussed here. A remarkable and long-established New Age Center called the Ojai Foundation sits on a plateau of some power. Significantly, the Ojai Valley is the only place in California where the San Andreas Fault runs east-west. Since geomagnetic field lines run north-south, the lion's share of the tulare ground currents they produce can be expected to do the same. This theory makes an east-west section of this part of the San Andreas Fault a powerful conductivity discontinuity. This has been confirmed by my own readings. Ed Sherwood is an Englishman and of unusual talents, married and settled in Los Angeles with his wife, Chris. They did not know about the geology of the Ojai or about my instrument survey where, what, there when they selected it as the place to spend their wedding anniversary each year. All they needed to know was that Ed could see light balls there, sometimes sporadic, but often prevalent. 
there are the same sort of light bulbs that emerge in our photos from Tikal. There's a plate with the photos of that. It has a library of light bulb photos, but the difference with him is that for years he has been able to feel their presence. He has been known to announce to a group of friends outdoors at night, they're here, and begin snapping away. The light bulbs will show up in the photos, often shoulder to shoulder. When he announces, they're gone now, his photos back him up. And when he announces, now they've moved over there, again his photos confirm his statements. In recent years, Ed has been able to train himself to see light bulbs as well. He claims that he can train most people to see them too, that they are capable of total concentration and can spare a few days. He first contacted me and sent me photos after discussing the light bulbs with the director of Rojai, who showed him my report. This report relates how on two occasions I measured the kind of rapid early morning alterations of geomagnetism seen near conductivity discontinuities. One of these visits was full of wonder. On my first morning there, sunrise had technically occurred, but not at Ojai. An odd fog pocketed this miniature sloping plateau. It was like pea soup, completely obscured the sun and had these odd concentric rings extending above the rest of the fog bank in the directions of the sun. I took the magnometer readings of the small stone circle made by the Ojai visitors near the top of the plateau. Readings were quite uniform until the sun broke through the fog and then suddenly skyrocketed 400 gammas in 15 minutes. As far as we know, this is not supposed to happen. It is known that telluric earth currents will jump when the sun breaks through a cloud or a fog, allowing the fair weather electric field of the atmosphere to connect with the earth. These electric currents will produce changes in the local magnetic field, which will be exaggerated at any conductivity discontinuity. But in this case, the normal morning charge in the geomagnetic field was completely blocked until the fog bank dissipated. Then the field jumped to where it should be and remained stable the rest of the day. On the second day, clear day, the normal geomagnetic field energies happen gradually. But this dense fog, while not quite violating the laws of physics, certainly stretched them. Therefore, we were tickled to learn that the spot had been labeled the dragon's eye by a prior visiting group of Tibetan monks who chose it as their spot for morning meditations. They told the staff, this is where the power is. The monks who also indicated that the ridge stretching beyond the circle was high powered in the afternoon of the first day, I saw why. About an hour before sunset, while I was walking along the ridgetop trail, readings of the electrostatic voltmeter began to store. Even on the high setting, the needle danced back and forth in abrupt springs until it finally climbed off scale, positive and stayed there. We can count on one hand the number of times this has happened to us, so it is no surprise that sensitives like Ed Sherwood, the Tibetan monks, and thousands of others continue to return to Urjaya Foundation for mind-altering experiences of a natural order. Sedona Energies it, it had not been my intention to go to Sedona, Arizona until people, hearing about my readings elsewhere, implored me to go there. They exclaimed, Oh, how can you not have taken your instruments to Sedona? You can go to an energy vortex there, and boy, you'll get readings all right because you can feel the energy. So I went, not really expecting to find much, 
but once again learned the importance of an open mind. Sedona certainly is staggeringly beautiful, surrounded by striking red cliffs and spires. Control readings miles before I reached Sedona showed me that I had expected, what I had expected, that all these red rock country is strongly magnetic. The red is, after all, from oxidized iron in the sandstone. This usually means that most but not all of the iron will be non-oxidized magnetite. Readings of 570 gammas on the vertical axis were a good 5 gammas more than I got before hitting Red Rock Country. After dining on buffalo steak, I drove out the dirt roads and the hills beyond to watch the magnetic field's readings drop. And drop they did. Readings fell hard and fast after sunset. Within hours, I had seen enough Cocopelli figures to last me a lifetime. I also got my fill of the phrase, energy vortex. Nevertheless, the next morning, I dutifully obtained a map that located and gave directions to those popular energy vortices. There were sandstone buttes at one end of town, vertical rock spires perched atop a humped base, hundreds of feet high, like images out of a John Ford Western filmed in the Monument Valley. They turned out to be centered on a negative magnetic anomaly, a spot with lower geomagnetic field strength, and a lie at a gradient, or border zone, of two areas of differing magnetic field strength. This was the classic geomagnetic profile we had come to expect from earth mounds or rock chambers. The geomagnetic characteristics of the two vortices I visited here reminded me of what we had found in other spots that had natural electromagnetic energies powerful enough for Native Americans to have selected them for special purposes. With a nod to Cocopelli, I drove off into, red, into a red rock sunset. Wonders of Bear Butte It has become accepted wisdom in the anthropological community in recent years that ancient rock art was created in trance probably by shamans who were depicting their hallucinations. The largest amount of rock art in the U.S. is located on a geological structure that creates a powerful electric ground currents at Petroglyphs National Monument. These geological structures will themselves create changing magnetic fields, which in turn can alter consciousness. Shamans sought out these energies to alter their consciousness, something that still happens today among modern Native Americans. The Black Hills of South Dakota have long been considered sacred ground by the Sioux, as well as by the tribes living there before them. The Black Hills are also one of the nation's leading conductivity discontinuities. And again, Kaj and I wondered if there was a connection. There is. For us, it started with a personal experience at Harney Peak, at over 70,000 feet, the highest point of the Black Hills. Oh, it's 7,000 feet, not 70. At over 7,000 feet, the highest point of the Black Hills and long considered the most sacred peak. We had been measuring electric ground current 200 feet below the summit and needed a break. I leaned back with closed eyes, resting my head on the cliff face. Dizziness and disorientation were the immediate results. Raising the head out of contact with the rock stopped the effect, while contact would initiate it all over again. Getting up to inspect, we found that the rock in question was a vertical vein of quartz running through the cliff face. Our meter showed that it had strong electric charge and was also charging the air next to it. We surveyed the entire cliff face and found that this was the only case in two small spots, both of which were veins of quartz. 
This effect made perfect sense because quartz stores electric charge like no other mineral, which is why is it used why it is used in watches. Now we began to understand why the Sioux insisted in their treaties that no other reservation ground would do. They had to keep the Black Hills, whether or not the white man wanted them for gold. The following day we were to stumble into a tradition that is still very much alive today. At the Black Hills Visitor Center, you can go look down on marvelous three-dimensional table map of the region. When you are wondering what might be an interesting site to visit, one stands out from the rest. This site alone spike in a flat land lies to the north. If you travel south from Canada over 1,000 miles of flat ground, this would be the first vertical break you encounter. Bear Butte is a geological twin of Devil's Tower in Wyoming, featured in close encounters of the third kind. Both are volcanic plugs, heavily metallic lava that cooled and hardened eons ago in the throat of volcanoes, which have themselves since eroded. But unlike its twin to the west, Bear Butte is still covered by dirt and looks simply like a tall, very steep hill with razor-edged flat top. Today this mountain is a state park with a trail. The signs read, open to visitors during daylight hours only. Only all white visitors are banned from the park after dusk. Then at the foot of the trail, please stay on the path at all times. Respect native traditions. Do not touch any objects off the trail. These rules are seriously enforced. You are visitors here. These grounds are still actively used for religious purposes. By the time we started up the trail, we noted two items of importance. Tied to the scattered trees were brightly colored pieces of cotton cloth called prayer flags by Native Americans. And secondly, the place was littered with magnetic anomalies, running the gamut from 1 to 400 gammas, similar to what we have found on mounds. Wherever there was a magnetic anomaly strong enough for a magnometer to detect, spot had been marked by a particular dense cluster of prayer flags. Occasionally, a medicine bundle would hang suspended from a tree. A stiff 25-knot breeze was blowing out of the north, and the prayer flags stood straight out, fluttering furiously and providing the only sound of this otherwise silent and deserted world. At the densest cloth clustered of all, twin festooned trees framed a stunning panorama of the plains to the north, at the edge of the thousand-foot cliff containing the most powerful magnetic anomaly, an incredible 900 gammas we have ever found. Leaning precariously over the abyss with the probe, we analyzed that this two-foot-wide anomaly on a projecting rock spire was exactly consistent with high, how lightning strikes will magnetize rocks. Nearby was an altar-shaped stone that contained a quartz crystal and a clamshell. The stone was marked with the names of visitors like Lindsay Walking Eagle, Rick Thundershield, Crystal High Wolf, and Lillian Whirlwind Horse. Whirlwind Horse. We continued trudging up the steep trail, pulled irresistibly now by this eerie, compelling place. The top of Bear Butte is a flat ridge, about five to ten yards wide and maybe one hundred yards long. From here, you look almost straight down on the roofs of the tiny dots of cars below. The top contains five striking magnetic anomalies detectable on our magnometer. They also, they had also been detected by someone else because every single one of them had been prominently marked. 
In four of the five places a shallow pit had been dug, each encircled by a low wall of rocks. The fifth site was unique. No hole, no wall, but a sleeping bag stashed on a tree nearby. This, at 500 gammas, was the strongest of the five ridgetop anomalies. Instead of a circle, it was surrounded by a square, five feet on one side. In the corner stood small piles of rocks, holding two feet two-foot willow poles that marked the cardinal directions. A red cotton flag in the north, a yellow in the east, a white in the south, and a black in the west. Connecting the four flags and forming the sides of the square were strings covered with hundreds of knotted bits of brightly colored cloth. And there's a photo of this plate four in the book. In the center of the square stood two erect Y-shaped willow sticks, holding up a long horizontal willow stick. It was apparent that the shaman had chosen the area with the strongest magnetic activity. Vision Quest In Uwipi, Vision and Experience, an Ogallala ritual, a contemporary Ogallala Sioux from the Pine Ridge Reservations describes the vision quest he had in the 1960s. He had asked a spiritual leader for help in his unsuccessful struggle against alcoholism. The following week, his spiritual leader drove him to the foot of, Butte, of a butte in the Black Hills and walked him to the top. Here he was seated in an enclosure, the same as the one we saw atop Bear Butte, surrounded by an array of colored flags, knotted strings, and six identical flags marked the same directions we had recorded. The sticks were all cut from sacred willow that morning. It turned out that the horizontal willow stick held up by the two vertical fork pieces was used to hold the medicine bundle of the shaman. It was left with the narrator, who stayed alone for the night. There had been no extensive fasting and no drugs were involved. He sat the, here through the night, lost in personal thought. Near dawn, the time of the strongest geomagnetic fluctuations, his thoughts turned into visions. The first one was auditory a drumming that swelled to such magnitude that he feared it would split his eardrums until he realized the source of the deafening beats. As he looked down at the ground between his legs, he could see ants, their feet touching the ground with each step, and he realized that they were the drummers creating this roar. Next, he noticed a thundercloud moving right at the butte until at the last moment it split in two, each half sweeping by him on either side. As this happened, Faces materialized in the clouds, cloud wall and leaned out, stretching their necks as they loomed over him and screamed. He wrote about these events 15 years later, and he had never had another drink. Persinger reported that the effect of geomagnetic fluctuations in humans is probably mediated by the pineal gland, which is most sensitive to the fluctuations late at night. The fluctuations are linked with increasing frequency of episodes of epilepsy, called the sacred disease by the ancients because of its disproportionate occurrence in shamans and oracles. Such natural fluctuations are also linked with certain hallucinations. We also find it interesting to note that Persinger's work has found the religious experiences associated with magnetic field fluctuations to take place in the brain's temporal lobe. This region of the brain lies next to the temples. It is worth recalling that the Olmec giant basalt heads that all had the north magnetic pole located at the temple by the carvers. The tradition of the vision quest, which we had observed on Bear Butte, had been developed 
by the childhood friend and spiritual mentor of Crazy Horse, who led Crazy Horse to Bear Butte. A Sioux shaman, he taught the system of the colored flags. And the willow sticks together to others. Willow sticks to others. Still identical in detail now, 150 years later. The meadow by the parking lot here, loosely decorated with cotton flags, is where those Sioux would gather in the morning to wait for Crazy Horse to descend from the butte and preach his vision. In Pine Ridge today, there are shamans who can pick out magnetic anomalies and use them to produce visions in their people. The National Park Service now allows Native Americans to continue a ritual use of Devil Towers, Devil's Tower, Bearbeet's geological twin. The tradition of vision quest, which had been observed on Bear Butte, had been developed by the childhood friend and spiritual mentor of Crazy Horse, who led Crazy Horse to Bear Butte. A Sioux shaman, he taught the system of the color flags and will. I think this actually is an error. I just read that whole paragraph, and it's a repeat. Yep, sorry. That's an error in the book. That paragraph is repeated twice. <laughs> of mushrooms and flying shamans. There's yet another way that the ancient builders may have been able to identify power spots, namely the physical effects that these spots produce on plant growth. Jerry Dvorak is a Czech hydrologist. His company uses scientific sensing equipment to spot the types of geological structures where municipalities can most profitably drill wells for water. These are the structures where water rises to the surface and therefore where natural springs occur most often. There are, they are interflues, the boundary between two different levels of aquifer. In his long career of prospecting through Europe, Dvorak has found that these interflues are by far the most prolific spots for hunting mushrooms. We knew from our research with electricity and plant growth that mushrooms growth is dramatically amplified by even very low electric currents in the ground. As Gordon Wasson has amply demonstrated in the classic Flesh of the Gods, one sacred ritual of ancient pre-Christian Europe centered around the conical mushroom Amanita muscaria. Its powerful mind-altering properties were so prized by shamans that it was hunted to extinction on the Indian subcontinent, where yoga then was invented to replace it. It is hard to exaggerate the importance of this fungus to Western consciousness. One set of um, Amanita users who in the early 20th century still practiced a late Ice Age lifestyle were the Laps or Sami of far northern Scandinavia and Russia. They were semi-nomadic reindeer herders living in yurts and driving about in reindeer-drawn sleighs. Their shamans wore pointed red hats symbolizing the mushroom that was their sa sacrament. The shamans also wore red capes symbolizing their flight through the air when they consumed the mushroom on their most sacred night of the year, the winter solstice, then December 25th. So from their mushroom hunting, the Eurasian shamans, the repository of knowledge of all pre-literate societies, would have known all about the growth-enhancing powers of these same types of geology that were selected by the megalithic builders. Star Fuentes trained for six years with contemporary mind shamans in Mesoamerica. When she first heard of our hypothesis, she asked us, So do you think the ancient builders were following the ley lines? 
Ley lines, as described by Alfred Watkins, are a series of straight lines connecting ancient sacred sites. We told her no because the ley lines we have seen on maps are too straight to be produced by any geological structures. But Starr explained, I don't mean those kinds of ley lines, I mean the ones that affect plants. She went on to explain how Mayan shamans know that to improve a plant's health, you can take it to a ley line, leave it for a period of hours to days, depending on the desired effect, and then bring it back home. We asked her how to find these ley lines and she replied, you just follow the clay. Star has no training in geology and at that point did not know about our research regarding interfluves. But these energy producing interfluves are typically associated with surface deposits of clay. Thus, we have first-hand reporting from two continents about the observed connection between improved plant growth and the same geological phenomena that were harnessed by the megalithic builders. These builders, therefore, would have been had two means of discovering appropriate locations, sensing and observation. And that brings us to the end of chapter three. Thank you for much, so much for joining me. Uh, next edition, chapter four, is called Return to the Lost World, and that will be up hopefully as soon as possible. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, we'll see you next time. <laughs>